It's called Don't Hide the Madness. Originally, I wanted to call it The Old Boys, A Book of the Dead, which was a play on The Wild Boys, A Book of the Dead, which is one of Williams' novels. Mm -hmm. but, but publishers felt Old Boys had too much of a negative connotation. So then there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And my wife finally said, well, there's your title. And uh, Don't Hide the Madness is a line that from the poem that I use as an epigraph. It's uh, in 1954, Ginsburg wrote a book called On Burroughs, uh, Ginsburg wrote a poem in 1954 called On Burroughs' Work. The method must be purest meat and no symbolic dressing, actual vision and actual prisons as seen then and now. Prisons and visions presented with rare descriptions corresponding exactly to those of Alcatraz and Rose. A naked lunch is natural to us. We eat reality sandwiches, but allegories are so much lettuce. Don't hide the madness. Well, you know, right after I did the initial transcription job in, in uh, March or late March of 1992, I started in a graduate school studying ethnography. I went to Brown, and um, I, I did, a, I did a graduate work in ethnomusicology, and I studied with a great, great folklorist and uh, ethnomusicologist, Jeff Todd Titan. So it's all that stuff about how to do an interview, how to transcribe an interview, how not to mess with it, and, and how to, how to, uh, how to no notate pauses. All of those mm. things were actually studied. I, I was studying um, right after I did the initial transcription. So years later now... 20 whatever years later um, that came into play yeah. and, you know it's really hard to get people to buy that people always want to mess with the text yeah. they want to take out the pauses they want to put words in the mouths of the speakers you know to make it more readable and I was so adamantly against that and in fact when we went into this project my initial intention was you know for publication absolute transcription of everything but then saner heads uh you know kind of talked me down from that and said you, all that stuff you know you can cut you can make cuts it's okay mm -hmm. so where i've made cuts sometimes i'll put in you know there's a conversation about the cat you know and that with one of the guests and le i left it out you know he does talk about his cats and he, was, he loves the cats <laughs> it's great it's so he like loves this the weaves cats. in and out fletch get out of the dip mother of god <laughs> <laughs> it's so six cats in that little house six cats oh but then he has others in other houses, other houses yeah. he talks about wanting to go visit his cat i have to go visit rusky or yeah, rusky. rusky today uh, rusky, rusky rusky his favorite cat yeah, yeah yeah and then that whole conversation where ginsburg says well could you ever tra could you ever uh, uh transfer that kind of love to a human no no couldn't do it it's not the same <laughs> right <laughs> Well, we're talking to you today because you wrote this incredible book, um, and I'd love if you can kind of break it down. It's a very unique book. It's uh -huh. different than than your traditional book about a particular character. Yeah. So when Alan and I were not performing, I sometimes worked in his office. He had a little office in his apartment, and I, you know, he would pay. He hired a lot of poets. <laughs> And yeah. artists to work for him. That's where his money went. Mm -hmm. But he, he, he generated a tremendous amount of work and correspondence and so on. Yeah. Um, files on everything, you know, amazing, amazing mind. So uh, whenever we were not performing and I needed work, I would work in his office assisting uh, Bob Rosenthal, who was Ginsburg's secretary. Mm -hmm. So in 1992, in the spring of 1992, um, 
David Cronenberg had just made the Naked Lunch movie, and it had released in the United States, and it was going to be coming out in England and in Europe in April of 92. So the London Observer wanted to send a journalist to Kansas, where William was living, and with Jim, with James, and uh, to do an interview for a short article in the London Observer magazine uh, in, in conjunction with the release of the movie in Europe. Mm. But William had had uh, open heart surgery mm-hmm. and had actually broken his hip, and he was had a oh. long, he was 78 years old, he had a long recovery. So James, the secretary, said, no, no guests, no journalists, you know, enough. So then the, the, I, my understanding, what Alan told me at the time, was that then the London people got in touch with Ginsburg and said, would you do it, figuring that, they wouldn't say no to Alan. Right. So Alan took the opportunity to visit his friend whom he hadn't seen for a year. And so Alan went out there and in typical fashion, he always did, he was tremendously prolific. So you ask him for a 250 page, a 250 word article, you know, you get a 300 page transcript. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> That's awesome. So he went out, so he went out to, uh, he went out to Kansas and stayed with William for five days and recorded every day their conversations and brought it back a dozen cassettes, 90-minute cassettes, which I then transcribed. The idea being I would transcribe it and then he would edit a little piece of it to give to the London Observer, which is what happened. So what you have is a transcript of a five-day conversation between two guys who knew each other from when Alan was 18 years old. I mean, and here they are, they're both in their, you know, Pushing, Alan's in his 60s. Bill, Bill is in his 70s. They've been, they've been lovers. They've you know everything. They've been through life together. They've been friends. I mean, they really were close friends. And you get all of it yeah. because during because during the conversation, there's a this a situation where there's some Japanese journalists want to interview Burroughs, and then again, you know, no no interviews, but they get the questions to Alan. So Alan reads the questions from the Japanese people who don't have a lot of knowledge background and want a lot of background. So you have Alan and William rehearsing their entire relationship pretty much (laughs) on tape. It's marvelous. And then the the first day that Alan arrives happened to be the day that William was to undergo an exorcism. Uh, There was an anthropologist called Bill Lyon who had worked with Black Elk and uh, you know, really put his career on the line, working many, many years, sort of outside the academy to some extent, uh, working with Native American teachers, uh, doing this great work. And he knew Melvin Betselli, who was a Navajo uh, Dine uh, man, a spiritual man, who performed the ceremony. So Bill Lyon arranged for a sweat lodge ceremony, exorcism, and Alan sat in the exorcism and then, you know, that's kind of crazy. And then um, immediately ran upstairs and wrote everything down. Yeah. So the next day at breakfast, he says, well, Bill, I'm going to read my notes from, from yesterday. <laughs> and he reads a detail, you know, blow by blow account of this whole ceremony and the crazy stuff that happened during the ceremony and the coals flying around and, you know, the prayers and what was said. And then the next thing is that Melvin comes to follow up to make sure everybody's okay. So then we get to hear from the shaman about his own practice at great length. He speaks of of his own practice, the various practices he engages in. And you know, and then uh, the the cherry on the Sunday, it really was crazy. When I initially transcribed the tapes, I left some things out. 
because some of it was sort of personal about health and personal finances and things like that, and I just I skipped it. Mm. So I discovered when I went through the tapes again, a whole thing where at the right at the end of the visit, William reads from the notes of his psychiatrist, Dr. Wahlberg from the 1940s, about William, about himself. So he's reading his own psychiatrist notes. Oh my God. About his early trauma and his difficulty, his difficulty relating with women, the history of that, what's that about, from the psychiatrist's point of view. So that's kind of the closer. Okay, so I uh, was a student at Glassboro State College in New Jersey in 1976, uh, unhappily pursuing a degree uh, to become a, uh, a high school music teacher. That was, I, I figured I could do that. And I really, it was turning out like I really didn't like the teacher training very much. And all of a sudden, Ginsburg showed up. Because he, Allen Ginsberg, basically made his living playing gigs like a musician. Because even though he was probably the best known American poet of the 20th century in global terms, um, he didn't make very much money on selling books. He was with uh, City Lights Small press publisher uh, who had published him beginning in 1956 and uh, was loyal to that press and so all of his books came out in small paperback editions and he he made about as I noted in the uh, in my introduction he made about twelve thousand dollars a year on book royalties that's not a lot of money for a famous writer it's the perpetual problem of the poet so he would go around play these gigs all over the country and that's how he paid his rent and uh, paid his secretary and so forth and so um, the English professor who had booked Alan into the college knew me. And uh, Alan asked him for a guitar player. Is there a kid who can play the guitar? And I was the only guitarist the professor knew. So next thing, I'm on stage with him. That's amazing. Watching him. Uh, and he had a little pump organ that he played, a little harmonium that he brought back from oh, India. Really? So I could see what he was doing. So I could cop the chord changes from watching his hand on the organ. And we played together, and then after that, he said, "Don't leave." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "You got to come. You know, do, we got to do this again." So um, I started to visit him in the city whenever I was home visiting my parents, basically in North Jersey. He would be visiting his father, who was sick, in Patterson, and um, I would just drive over to Patterson, and we would get together. And then we started to gig, and then we started to tour internationally. So that went on for twenty years, on and off. It was very, everything changed after. Alan changed everything. But in 78, there was a big Burroughs event at the Intermedia Theater, the Nova Convention, uh, at the Intermedia Theater on 2nd Avenue? Yeah. And and, uh, it was a big event celebrating the work of Burroughs. Loads of people, Patti Smith, Keith Richards was supposed to be there. I saw Ed Sanders play for the first time um, and decided then and there I was going to work with him. And that happened. Yeah. <laughs> like all kinds of crazy stuff happened. One of the things that happened is Alan took me backstage and introduced me to Burroughs. So that's when I met him. Yeah. And his uh, secretary, James Grauerholz. And then the next time I saw Burroughs, probably at the bunker where he lived on the Bowery. I remember a visit there. And then the next time I saw Burroughs was in the summer of 79 um, because um, every summer Alan and I would go out to Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, where Alan and and Ann Waldman and Diane De Prima and others had started a writing school, so there was the poetry uh, or summer writing summer writing program, and William was a frequent guest at the summer writing program, and really a great 
a great teacher, a great participant. So the summer of 79, I went out there, and William had arrived without his secretary. James had not come, and Alan asked me to uh, help, uh, help William out until James showed up. And so I had a couple of days of assisting William with various things, and that's when I sort of got to know him. Uh, we were never close. I did not get to know him very well. He was kind of guarded, formal manners, I think shy. Yeah. Kind of shy, protective, but always uh, very, very much the gentleman and, uh, you know, a generous person. Uh, William wrote 18 novels and novellas, several books of stories, books of essays. He was quite prolific. He was a great writer. I think I read everything. I think I read everything. He's just a wonderful writer. Naked Lunch is deeply troubling. There is some troubled vision going on there. I mean, when you read, when you read things like Naked Lunch, you see that kind of horrific scenes in there. Uh, he, was tor- he was tormented. Yeah. 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 But all those books, the Naked Lunch was, uh, Kerouac participated in that. Ginsburg and Kerouac participated in that. It was quite an experiment. William had gone to Tangier <laughs> and was heavily, heavily, heavily into dope. He was really a mess. But he kept writing, writing, and writing, and writing. And his room was carpeted with sheets. He just kept producing. So Kerouac and Ginsburg came in to visit and organized all the papers and retyped it. And Kerouac was legendary for his ability to type two fingers, 120 words a minute. And so Jack sat there and retyped the bulk of the book. And then they sequenced it and collaborated with William on the sequencing. And uh, there's a certain amount of chance operations in the sense that uh, what they thought would be the last chapter wound up being the first chapter. And just things, things happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, really an amazing, amazing book. The movie I thought was interesting learning about this in the book yeah. was how um, the I didn't know that there was that back and forth between Burroughs and Cronenberg when Cronenberg was wanting to put the movie out that he yeah. I, oh yeah that, that, that it took a few he, years for them yeah. to yeah. approve the script and I don't yeah. he, was he not the first one that had approached him about a movie I, and he had rejected no other... I don't know but when Cronenberg sent the first draft of the script. Burroughs rejected it and he kept trying he kept coming back and finally agreed and got involved in the movie and went to Tangier with uh, Cronenberg to scout locations and was in Toronto uh, when the movie was in production uh, at which point he started to get bad chest pains and and that led to heart surgery but he was involved in the movie yeah Yeah, it seemed like he was very involved in the movie which you can feel like when you watch that movie I mean it's this is not like a committee movie. I mean, this was, this was definitely overseen by (laughs) William because it's so dark. It's just so dark. And so you're just going into someone's psyche. Yeah. I think once he approved the script, it wouldn't have been, it would not have been difficult to work with William because he was, his whole ethics was like not to tell anybody what to do. Mm. I mean, that was one of the problems with Joan. Joan was taking drugs and drinking, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't say you you shouldn't do that. Right. That's her choice. That's kind of an existentialist position. You know. That's true. You yeah. know. Well, you make your choices, and that's that's your choice, and I'm not going to judge you. You know. <laughs> so once he had approved the script, he was probably pretty easy to work with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I I don't know why that surprises me, but it does. And yeah. a lot of the stuff that I I sort of garnered from the book. It was a really interesting glimpse into his personality. He's yeah. different than I expected him to be. Yeah. I don't know if I just expected him to be 
meaner or yeah. grouchy or what. No, but he's not really grouchy. He's not. You can see from the book that, you know, friends and neighbors come by. He's really friendly. Yeah. Come in, come yeah. in, sit down. You yeah. know. Feeds people. Feeds people, yeah. 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 You know, has a great love of animals. Just yeah. talk throughout the book yeah. about how much he loves animals. Yeah. Yeah, he just—he really is just a much warmer person than I expected. Well, him he's to at be. home. It's a great scene yeah. because he's at home. He's comfortable. Yeah. He's surrounded by loved ones. You know, it's—it's. It's, uh, it's a really—it's a really lovely sort of yeah. like glimpse behind the curtain yeah. mm-hmm. at this like yeah. really mythic figure who's probably widely misunderstood. Yeah. yeah. So I could not get anybody interested in this thing. Really? That I is like, the, I the, and I have no. the photographs. And Alan took the photographs. The photographs are wonderful. Right. The book is interspersed with these great photographs. Yeah, yeah. And people were like, ah, nobody wants to. You know, I, I went to an agent, and he said, uh, I can't sell this. I mean, this it, has never been mm-hmm. – uh, You've no one's ever heard mm-hmm. these tapes before, no, right? No. You know, I was going through a, a, a box of stuff in my closet in Brooklyn in 2014, and I found a transcript. <laughs> And I was like, you know, we really should do something about this. And I contacted the Ginsburg office, Peter Hale, who's a dear friend and was very close with Alan. And Peter said, yeah. Well, and he was great and helpful. And contacted James Grauerholtz, who was in charge of the Burroughs estate. And he said, yeah, we love Stephen. Let him do it. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> I thought it was going to be harder than that. But then getting a publisher. I mean, so wow. the agent I spoke to said, there's a beatnik glut on the market. Really? So my idea was, this is not beatniks. This is William Burroughs. Yeah, That's exactly. Different. It's very different. And personal experience, personal stuff. Very right? personal stuff. And real, the words of the of these guys, right? And so they said, send it to City Lights. And so then City Lights sat on it for a while, and the word from City Lights was, we can't figure out how to make a book out of it. Hmm. I'm like, what's to figure? Yeah. It's already a book. All you got to do is slap a cover on it. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's, I, a, it's a conversation between these two guys. Look get at this out of the way. way. If and you just had Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Baudelaire having dinner together, wouldn't you want to read about that? <gasps> yes. Yeah, it, I know. couldn't put it down no, because you're either. in the room with them. Yeah. You feel yeah. like you're yeah. a fly on the wall yeah. listening so to this incredible, incredibly intimate it's conversation. It's so true. And like it's you're you're saying, um, you know, that it's it's about this significant, you know, moment, this exorcism. You yeah. know that that's like sort of what the the book like is has yeah. that as its center all the way through. Yeah. But then all around it, there's these wonderful little moments where they're talking about different soups they've both yeah, been the, trying to make. Yeah, the vichy swaz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how they're, you know, Ginsburg is trying to tell Burroughs he needs to watch his salt intake. Yeah. And like, there's just all these. The, and then Burroughs uh, talking about his cats. Yeah. And like how he, he just goes, he just waxes rhapsodic about all of his cats. The cats, yeah. And, and there's just all these like lovely intimate little moments that yeah. are like what really like make up a life and make up yeah. the whole person yeah. and they're all friends yeah and and they're all it's all it's like um it's james mm-hmm. and a, a couple of assistants all, all close friends Th- three three really steve lowey michael emerton and wes wes i can't remember his name but yeah. close friends in this little community they all live close together and you know Guard is down, yeah. Yeah, guard is down, and they're just having a fun conversation. Yeah. And they go to the movies, and they're sitting in the movies watching the Naked Lunch movie, and Alan is talking during the movie. (laughs) This is meta. It's (laughs) it's like Mystery Science Theater beat style. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, it was really fun. Then they go shooting. Yeah. 
I couldn't get a decent photograph. I didn't have any good photographs of Alan at the shoot at the at the shooting. But you can you get from the transcript what's going on. They paint pictures and then they shoot them. Mm -hmm. And so Alan paints a big picture of the Buddha and shoots the Buddha. You know, there are lots of jokes about that. You know. Sure. <laughs> And Alan with gun, it, it, it's like, if you knew, he's like the least gun-prone individual ever, I mean. I mean, he seems like But it. he got to, you know, William was like, where, Alan, take this. Now you hold it like that, you know. And <laughs> he shoots. Yeah. And then they sit around the table looking at targets. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what shooters do. Like, you take the targets home and you look at the targets, you know. To see where you shot it. Count all the shots and who shot what. So funny. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was like a ministry video in the 90s that uh, William S. Burroughs participated in where he then, you know, has a shotgun and shoots a target mm. in this video. I mean, I that yeah, I, it was just when I was kind of yeah, getting into younger, like a, a lot of younger <laughs> artists sought him out. He was really special mm. in, that, in that regard. He's kind of unique to, to he was affiliated with the Beats. Because he was one of the main, you know, the main writers of the little group, but he was never much. He wasn't a beat. He was never a beatnik. That's for sure. He was a rich boy from St. Louis, mm. a black, not black sheep. They're kind of black sheep of the family, like the strange one. You know, the one who, you know, he went to Harvard, and after that, it was downhill all the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, can we can we talk a little bit about that? Like, just yeah. in case, because so, he has this sort of mythic status. Yeah. I think. Where to start? Well, I'll just riff. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. So his grandfather invented the modern adding machine. So Burroughs Corporation was an ad with adding machine manufacturer, and they made a lot of money. Uh, they sold out right before the stock market crash to the tune of about $3 million. What, what in today's money would be about $3 bucks. So they had some money. So William went to various schools. He had some trauma as a child, which comes out in the book, involving his nanny. It appears that he was sexually abused uh, by the nanny and her boyfriend, something like that, something like that. So that's big, and it finishes, it comes back in the book, because Alan keeps pushing on it. Yeah. What is that memory, the other memory, not the one that the shrink got to, the one that's underneath that, what is that? So there's, that's a whole interesting thing. Yeah. So then William, um, so he was gay, at a time, born in 1914, so growing up a gay boy in the 20s and 30s, not a great situation. No. Um, went to Harvard, did well. Um, then he went to Vienna to go to medical school because, at least at the time, they took, if you, there was no application in the sense that we do it in America. If you could cut the, if you could make the grade, you could get the degree. So you're in. But now you got to make it. Now you got to pass your classes. So he, he saw that as a way to get into the medical profession. He pursued that for a while. But the rise of the Nazis uh, was was you know wicked. It was on the horizon, and he, he returned to New York, I think, in '37, um, and then uh, went to Chicago for a while. Took odd jobs. He worked as an exterminator. He worked as a detective, <laughs> private detective. He worked as a bartender. Uh, always kind of shadowy jobs, and uh, he, uh, his parents gave him an allowance. Until he was 50, he received a monthly allowance from his parents, wow. sufficient to cover his basic expenses, so he didn't really have to work. Right. Much of the, really didn't have to work. So <clears throat> he was in New York, got involved with uh, morphine, mm -hmm. 
always kind of operating in the shadows, always fascinated with the sort of criminal underworld and, you know, marginal to that. So he met Herbert, Herbert Hunky, who was a great, I knew Hunky actually, he lived quite a while, but Hunky was a sort of, he was the guy that introduced the beats to the street life mm -hmm. and the kind of uh, downtown, uh, edgy end of things. These guys were basically working class guys from the suburbs yeah. um, for the most part. And, and um, he got them hip to the street, you know. Like the thing about Hunky was, he would say, well, you, when you go into a bar, always figure out where the back door is. Oh. <laughs> this yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> so, where the pool cue is and who's the biggest guy in the room. <laughs> so William was dealing in stolen property. He had uh, somebody, he had gotten a machine gun <laughs> through a guy who was working in a shipyard on the war effort, and he was trying to sell it on the black market. And through, through that, he got in touch with Hunky, and Hunky turned him on to morphine, and he got addicted to it. So then, um, then 43, Christmas of 43, uh, well, let's see. So, so Ginsburg went to Columbia University, mm -hmm. 17 years old, 1943, and met Lucian Carr. Introduced him. Lucian Carr was described in his New York Times obituary as the midwife of the beat generation. He connected everybody. Mm. And... So Alan went to Columbia, met Lucian. Lucian introduced Ginsburg to Burroughs. And Lucian had been hanging out with Joan Vollmer and Edie Parker. Mm -hmm. Very important. Now, those two women were kind of the social scene where the beat thing happened. Yeah. They were very important. Edie came from money in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Joan came from upstate a little, uh, upstate. I think her father was a lawyer or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, middle class. But brilliant women, Barnard, uh, and uh, party, you know, it was party time. Adventurous young ladies with a big apartment in Harlem. Mm. And so people would hang out there. So uh, Lucian knew the women. <clears throat> and he told Alan, hey, Edie's boyfriend is in town. We got to meet him. He's a real writer. And that was Jack Kerouac. So Lucian, Edie, William, Alan, Kerouac, uh, and Joan all hanging out, taking Benzedrine, <laughs> which was a, was speed. William and Joan hit it off like gangbusters. They just loved each other. He said um, he felt she was the most intelligent person of the whole group, yeah. and he was kind of fascinated with her, and they became lovers, mm -hmm. even though William was basically gay. Right. And eventually... Um, her drug problem became pretty severe, and he went to where he, he got busted for tr forging a prescription because oh. he was addicted to heroin. Oh. And the judge said, uh, "Oh well, you're a nice boy from a you know from a respectable family. You know, it's your first offense. You, I, you know, your punishment is to go back to your parents in St. Louis." <laughs> he went to a rehab. He went home. He got involved in cotton farming in Texas with an old friend, invested some money, wow. and was doing the cotton farming thing. Then he hears from Alan that Joan is in really bad shape. She's in Bellevue. She's a mess. You know, the drugs are out of control. So he went and got Joan and took her down to Texas. And then she got, then she had a baby, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, William, uh, Billy, William Jr., so there's two kids. She had the she had the kid from her from her marriage. Her husband was in the army. She maintained that marriage because as a 
as the uh, wife of a combatant, mm -hmm. she got extra money. Oh. <laughs> so she had him on the line. Right. She had William taking care of her, and she never did get off the dope. She never did. When and did drank. she pass away? 51, uh, September, was it 51? Yeah, 1951. They, so what happened is um, William, uh, William and Joan bought a farm mm -hmm. in Texas, and the idea was <laughs> to grow marijuana. Mm -hmm. I, partly the idea was to get off dope, quit drinking, get off the dope, chill out. So they bought a kind of a remote little farm off in the woods somewhere, but instead of growing tomatoes like every other sane Texas farmer, <laughs> you know, citrus crops, right. he decided, well, we're going to grow, grow marijuana. So they they spent a year growing marijuana, and then, but they didn't know that you have to cook it, you have to cure it before you can smoke it. Right. So they took a big bale of, of green weed up to New York City, <laughs> oh and nobody wanted it. Yeah, because it's all <laughs> So they couldn't, they couldn't sell it. So <laughs> anyway, so they're, they're back in Texas, and he's looking around for a, uh, a place to, uh, you know, more land or something to do something. And they're drunk, and they're driving in the car, and they just decide to make love by the side of the road. So somebody calls the sheriff. <laughs> So they get put in jail. So, and the sheriff has a reputation as a, like a killer. Like people disappear. Oh. This guy has a terrible reputation. He's notorious, right? So they're terrified of this guy. So they, the family bails him out and they split. They're like, we're not sticking around. And they split and they went to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So they go to New Orleans and immediately he starts looking for heroin. <clears throat> So he's driving around looking for heroin, and the cops stop him, and there's a gun in the glove compartment. So then they search the house, and they find weed. Mm -hmm. And at the time, just having needle, just having needle marks was was a, was a, against the law. You didn't have to find the dope if you could if you pr could prove that the person was a user, they could be uh, charged with that. Oh. So he was charged in the uh, in New Orleans, and uh, they didn't stick around for the trial. They thought he didn't. He might wind up in jail, mm -hmm. and so they split for Mexico City. Mm -hmm. So now they're living uh, in Mexico City. Okay. Well, in Mexico City, dope is cheap. Yeah. It's not a good place to be an addict. So he's on the family allowance. The family allowance goes a lot farther in Mexico City. Yeah. She's drinking. You know, they're both drinking. He's using heroin, and he hooks up with a guy, a straight guy that he's completely mad about and convinces this guy to go on a trip with him to South America. Right. So they go to South America, they come back, and so they were all sitting around. So then um, at point, some point he needed money, and he always had guns. And so he, he had a gun he was gonna sell. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want the buyer to come to his apartment. He wanted to sell it at somebody else's apartment, so the buyer could not track him down again yeah. so there were, uh, there was a bar called the bounty where everybody hung out and there was apartments above the bounty and so joan and bill and marker uh the boyfriend and a couple other people are sitting around and he's playing with this gun and uh there are differing different accounts of what happened yeah uh, james grauerholtz put together an exhaustive investigation a marvelous paper that's cited in the book uh the death of Joan Burroughs, what happened. And um, basically what happened was the, the idea is that Bill was trying to impress the boyfriend yeah. and Joan was needling him. 
they were they had a plan that they were going to leave Mexico City and go move to the jung- jungles in Ecuador or something, <laughs> again to get off the dope, and it, you know they were going to farm and Bill was going to shoot meat you know hunt for food mm-hmm. and she's saying oh you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn you know and she started insulting him and we don't know if it was his idea or her idea there are conflicting accounts but he they decided they were going to do a William Tell routine and she put her, her glass on her head and he shot at the glass and it killed her so he was charged with uh, he was he was charged he got a lawyer he was charged uh, the family, the brother, old elder brother, was immediately sent to Mexico City with a lot of cash. Oh, yeah. Like $30,000 in his pocket. At that time, that was a lot of money. It was yeah. like a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. Oh, to pay God. off Mexican authorities. To pay authorities. off the Mexican authorities, maybe. I'm not sure. You know, the idea was they were going to pay off a ballistics expert. The lawyer told Bill, uh, you dropped the gun. You weren't playing a game. You dropped the gun and it went off. And they were going to bribe a ballistics expert to say, yeah, the gun hit the floor and that's where the bullet came from, you know. Uh, but it was, a, it was a game. But he believed that he was uh, uh, the ugly, what later became known as the ugly spirit made him do it. Yeah. And he describes in his writing being tremendously depressed the day of the shooting, crying in the street, weeping in the street with such terrible depression, feeling really, really bad. And he felt that that was the demon. And he talks about that in, in Queer, I think, in, in the introduction of Queer. He says, this, this, I was in a, I, that put me in a situation where I had to write my way out. And, and he believed he was possessed. Right. And, of course, in the book, there's an exorcism of that demon. And he quite literally believes in it in the medieval sense. He says that. It's like, it's, I don't, I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm not talking in psychoanalytic terms. I believe there is a demonic possession. Right. Yeah. It, apparently, from the conversation in the book, he believed that it was real, that it really was, it really happened, mm-hmm. and that he had the demon had been exercised. But it's interesting. The dynamic there is interesting because some of the guys that were there were saying all kinds of crazy things. They said like, "Well, the the shaman ate a flaming coal." And you know the, fl- the the coals were flying around the t- the demon in the shape of a form of a coal was flying around the tent. And Alan, being very skeptical and saying, "Are you sure you saw that? Did you see that?" And William, somewhere in the middle, he's not committing either way. So the younger guys are all like, "All these crazy things happen. All this magic happened." And Alan's like, "Really? I didn't see that. Are you sure you saw that?" Yeah. And Bill will not commit one way or the other. So an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, and that. The ugly spirit that he was talking about. Had he already gone through any shamanic exercises? No, but he'd had an interest in those things his his whole life. Okay. And also the nanny, to whom he was very attached, was from Wales and had all kinds of... uh, And there was also an Irish housekeeper. Mm -hmm. So these ladies, you know, they were witchy in some way or had that tradition and so taught him things like how to call toads and... Yeah. <laughs> he talks about that in the book. Call the toads, yeah. yeah, he says, oh, we'll do it later tonight. We'll go out in the backyard and you can call yeah, some Yeah, and toads. James says, just don't call any more cats. We have yeah. enough. <laughs> but, you know, he always had that interest in, in the sort of mystical side of things. Yeah. And um, later doing uh, ESP experiments with Brian Geisen in Paris mm-hmm. in the early 50s, uh, during a kind of mediumistic exercise, uh, Brian said, the ugly spirit shot Joan. So he named it. And it's interesting because what he thought the ugly spirit was was associated with uh, 
the Rockefellers and the money and the robber barons and all that is evil, what he thought of the evil of America, the dark side of America. He associated the ugly spirit with that, so some family history. Uh, He had an uncle on his mother's side. His name was Ivy Lee, who was important in the history of public relations. He worked for the Rockefellers, and he was an early uh, sort of innovator in PR and that kind of manipulation. So for William, it was the medieval Catholic sense of an actual demon, but also all tied up with um, money. Money, yeah. Well, it's also interesting uh, from a psychological perspective that, you know, he's— He's kind of using this as the reason yeah. that he killed his of wife. Yeah. But, you know, from a psychological perspective, you haven't really evolved, you know, that that therapy to seeing it as yourself. He's 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 giving it an entity, yeah. but it's really, you know. That can be physically cast out. That's yeah, yeah, right. That can, can be physically be ca- cast yeah, out. Said, but he, he said, was the really the, the spirit that did it, you know. Yeah, and, you know, the, the whole sort of classical exorcism uh, interest. At one point in the book, he says, uh, well, psychiatrists always get it wrong. Mm. They think it's some kind of damn complex. (laughs) Psychiatrists get in there, they always screw it up, you know, Mm. whereas the priests actually understand what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) You can just get rid of it. As long as you bundle it up to all these terrible things and just purge it. That's actually interesting because Ginsburg comes in as a Blake scholar, as a scholar of William Blake, talking about how spirit has to have a form in order for you to understand it. So they get this sort of Blakean outsider theology, cosmology. The Christian exorcism routine, because he's reading Malachi Martin's book on exorcism. Mm -hmm. Malachi Martin was a Jesuit who was an exorcist and who interviewed a bunch of exorcists and did an account of uh, six exorcisms or something like that. And that book um, was of great interest to William. And there's a lot of discussion of that book in this book about, you know, it keeps coming back. Mm. Why Why did he choose a, like a Native American shaman to exorcise? this demon rather than like a catholic priest or 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 any other spiritual figure i what i can say is that that bill lyon had been arranging the anthropologist Mm -hmm. had been arranging for native american healing ceremonies for various people yeah and bill knew bill lyon knew william burroughs so when the question came up of you know needing a, a healing ceremony um melvin was a great candidate for that and also, uh, Burroughs didn't want to become too involved with the church. There's a scene in the book where they're talking about a, a Catholic priest with whom James and William became very friendly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the priest says, you know, I can, tr- I can anoint you with oil for your sickness, but you have to, you have to what? You have to become a Christian first. Right. I have to baptize you first. Yeah. <laughs> and James said, well, Bill, now's your chance. you got a priest right here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he didn't want to be baptized. So he, he, wasn't going for the, he wasn't going to become a Catholic. I'm going to hit pause here and yeah, say, sure. how did you survive all of this? Because they were partiers. I mean, well, you so look much. pretty healthy. Well, no, no, actually, <laughs> and you've got quite a memory. Well, actually, Alan's drug use was always experimental. Yeah. He would like smoke a joint and then write a poem, or he would take, you know, uh, he experimented with nitrous oxide and poetry or mescaline in poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, can, I mean, I remember one time I came to the house, I came to the apartment, and uh, Owsley was sitting at the table. Well, Owsley was legendary as the, man, the guy who provided all the LSD for the Grateful Dead. <laughs> he was an LSD chemist of legend. <laughs> wow. And he brought a jar 
like a peanut butter jar full of this clear liquid and gave it to Alan. And that sat in Alan's refrigerator for like a year. And we'd say, are we going to do it? And we'd go, nah. <laughs> no. You know. So he was very, um, even heroin, I mean, I saw him shoot heroin. But he, he didn't do it as a habit. He did it as a, a kind of an experiment or as a poetic practice. Yeah. Yeah. Just to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And when you're when you were touring with Alan and you were um, playing with him, are you you're playing music to his poems? Uh, no, that's a good yeah. question. He yeah. wrote songs. Oh, okay. I don't he, think I ever knew that actually. Yeah, I just know him songs. as a poet. He's a great songwriter. Uh, really funny songs. Yeah. But he went to India, uh, early '60s, and was there singing mm-hmm. uh, bhajans, Hindu. Uh, really? holy songs and yeah. mantras with a harmonium and then he came back to America and Bob Dylan showed him how you can write a song using three chords and Alan as I said earlier was very prolific so he immediately wrote a lot of songs <laughs> <laughs> so when I met him he was going around singing songs yeah. so we would typically begin a show with a couple of songs then he would read some poems yeah. then we do some more songs and some more poems, and then we close with music. Hmm. So it was, and interestingly, I, the only music that I composed for his poetry was music that was composed to accompany him reading his poetry. Yeah. I never contributed a tune, to, uh, a melody to any of his words because he already had the melodies. Al and I were walking around uh, Washington Square, oh, maybe 82 or so, or so. And he said, oh, the Fugs are rehearsing at 105th Avenue. Let's go, let's crash the rehearsal. And so I went, and it was Ed Sanders, who was one of the founders of the Fugs, with a bunch of younger guys getting ready to play a benefit at the Mud Club. And Ed had a habit where uh, he always carried extra copies of his lyrics. And so when you get, you go into the, you crash the rehearsal, you get the lyrics. Ah. So he started, <laughs> he started singing, and then the drummer started singing on harmony, and so I put a second harmony on it, and it sounded pretty good and the manager Charlie Rothschild said you guys ought to do something and that was how the Fugs got back together Fugs had originally broken up in 67 or 68 and in 84 Ed was getting back into music and I came along right then <laughs> and so the drummer and I are still in the band Oh, yeah. Still in that band, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. the Fugs. I got me a band, you know, for life. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Oh yeah, you're a lifer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one story. Uh, so we were in Poland during the Solidarity Uprising time, prior to the collapse of the communist state. And uh, we traveled with the U- United States Information Service, which was a program from the State Department. We called it CIA Light. We joked about <laughs> it. But what it was was the State Department would send American artists to Europe, particularly to the communist countries, as a kind of diplomacy. So you would go and play and sing and so forth. And so we'd go and we'd be playing to the, all these audiences of guys in suits, you know. Mm-hmm. It was all invited and it was quiet. Nobody knew you were there. And then after you left the country, they'd say, oh, American artists were here. Isn't that great? So <laughs> we're, we're going around, you know, the, the Soviet bloc doing that. And uh, we were in Poland. And in that situation, you get hosted by U.S. diplomats. You get to hang out with the, a lot of U.S. diplomats. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which are great. There's so many great people in the diplomatic corps. I mean, that was really a revelation. God bless those people. We ought to take better care of them. Yeah. You know, you know, really got like idealistic, 
beautiful people. You yeah, know, there's a lot yeah. of really nice people in that job, and and uh, so we're hanging out with all these diplomats, and we're at the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw, and uh, they said, well, here's the, you know, here's all these people, here's all these Polish officials. This is the head of the pub- state publishing company. This is the head of state radio. This is the head of you know what, whatever the various agencies of the government, and we parted with those guys, and then one of the Americans said, would you like to meet the underground? We said, yeah. So they said, okay, well, you know, be, we'll pick you up. So they picked us up, and they drove us way outside of town to a vacant apartment and said, wait here. It was like a spy movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. So we're in, the, yes. we're, in the, we're in the apartment, and then another driver came and brought us back into town to this loft in the center of town where we were partying with the underground. And the underground was all the people that we had met the previous day. <laughs> in other words, everybody was in on it. Everybody That's... was in on it. The, the, the person running state radio was basically part of the underground. The whole economy had become the underground. Everybody was dependent on it. So everybody That's was interesting. in it. It was yeah, super interesting. And uh, I remember going in, also in Warsaw, the, the, uh, the head of the Solidarity newspaper, the editor of the Solidarity newspaper was in military prison, dissident in a oh. prison. And we heard that he was not well, and that he was not—he was cold, and he was not not being properly cared for. So Alan decided to march into this military prison and demand to be seen, demand to visit the prisoner. And the officers were just furious; they could not believe this person had the gumption to get in their face. You know, only in America. He was so—he <laughs> he was fearless. He was fearless. Yeah. Really, I mean, I saw him jump into a. We came out of a restaurant one time in Germany, and there was something that some some group of guys were going to beat up a guy. It was a fag bashing, yeah. and Alan spotted it right away, and he just jumped in and scattered. Everybody scattered. And he's he, not a big no, guy. No, he wasn't a big guy. He was just completely fearless. Wow. Really amazing, amazing person. The most generous human I ever met in my life. That really comes yeah. off in the book, too, and yeah. just totally lacking pretense. One of the yeah. things that struck me as I'm reading it is I feel like if I was recording myself having these conversations with somebody like Burroughs, who's mm-hmm. such a figure, I would be so self-conscious, mm-hmm. and everything I said would come off as trying to... But he's just so real throughout well, the whole thing. Well, they were kids together. I mean, so... William was older, mm-hmm. so 10 years older than Alan, 12 years older than Alan, but still young when they met yeah you know alan was 17 burroughs would have been 29 or something yeah you know wow yeah so they knew each other though there was no yeah they'd already seen everything yeah well yeah and and that comes off too they're talking about there's so many great intimate moments in there and they're talking about old friends like who's who's gone through rehab and yeah who's in trouble and who's you know who's ill yeah yeah how did how did the audio sound when you revisited the tapes? Mostly it's good. William has a tendency to mumble a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some of it I had to look. My wife had to listen to so many. Mm. She's got burrows <laughs> on the brain now forever. We're rewinding the tape over and over. <laughs> so after the initial transcription in 92, I never I didn't listen to it again until a few months ago, a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and Stanford had digitized the original recordings and cleaned it up a little bit. So the, the digital versions, the digital files were a little bit better than the original tapes in terms of noise reduction and things like that. So it's, you can see in the book, there's sometimes I have to guess what William is saying. You always know what Alan's saying, yeah. you know, but William it's, was a soft-spoken guy. 
Hmm. Yeah, so sometimes it's in brackets. I put a lot of brackets in there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask um, also about the cover of the book. Yeah. Um, So Robert Crumb did the cover, is that right? Yeah. It's my understanding that he's a little um, sort of reticent to... How did you get him to well, do this cover? <laughs> what happened is uh, Peter Karloftis and Cat Georges are the publishers, Three mm-hmm. Rooms Press. And Peter had, uh, I was meeting with Peter and Cat about the book, and he said, you know, I just realized I have Crumb's assistant's email on an email chain. <laughs> Should I try it? Like, why not, right? Yeah, so yes. yeah you try it. <laughs> why not? So he contacted the assistant, and the assistant said, one, he'll never do it. Two, he's going to ask for a ton of money. Right. And he agreed to do it, and he didn't ask for very much money. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. It was just a, like luck. Just, And he did it quick. Wow. It's gorgeous. And he de-hand-lettered, he de-hand-lettered the title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, it's beautiful. And he's, he caught the characteristic. You know, Alan had a paralyzed upper lip, a little bit of a fat lip, and it's oh. in there. Yeah. I mean, he really got these guys. He really did. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah, that, I mean, it's that just... blew my mind. I mean, that blew my mind. <laughs> I know. Really? Did my book cover. You have had oh, such on. an interesting life. I mean, and it's such a. This book isn't just you getting these tapes. I mean, you've lived this life and you know these people intimately, and it's it, it's such a special thing that that came together yeah. because of this. It's 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 really incredible. Two weeks after I met Ginsburg. I was in a recording studio for the first time in my life at Columbia Records with John Hammond. Like that is mind that yeah. that was just mind blowing. I'm I'm singing into a microphone, yeah. and the producer who signed Billy Holiday, the guy who told uh, you know Benny Goodman to start a band, yeah. the guy who signed Bob Dylan and Stevie Ray Vaughan, is telling me how to you know coaching me on how to use the microphone. It's funny because I I was uh, I was taking a break. I was in the men's room, and one of the guys in the band came in and said, "Dylan's going to come to the session." And I thought, if Bob Dylan walks in here, I'm going to drop. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Enough already. I can't take anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so life was like that. It it was um, it was magic. Mm. Yeah. 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 Gosh. He said, you know, he said it's in a poem. Ginsburg says, "I refuse to say who my best friend is." Uh-huh. But he was my best friend, for sure. People, you know, people don't like his politics. People don't like his sexuality, all of these things. But he was super generous. He gave away everything he ever earned, basically. Nobody, people don't know that. He started something called the Committee on Poetry. Mm -hmm. And um, early on, because he was making, because he was so popular, he was able to make pretty good money touring. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want to pay war taxes because of the Vietnam War. So he started COP, and all his money went into COP. And so that where that money went was um, artists who were in trouble, somebody needs a lawyer. You know, Amiri Baraka got in trouble, needed a lawyer, paid for that. Timothy Leary wow. needed, you know, Timothy yeah. Leary needed a lawyer, contributed to that. And by the, when I first started working with him, one of my first jobs was writing checks out of the COP account, Committee on Poetry account, for writers in need. Mm-hmm. And what it did was, if you were a person with some money who was a lover of literature and wanted to help out um, your favorite poet anonymously, COP made it easy to do that because you make your donation to the Committee on Poetry, 
the Committee on Poetry signs the check so that the writer doesn't know where the money's coming from. And we supported a lot of writers that way. Yeah. And that was just Alan. That was his own money and money that was donated to, to facilitate that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing that people don't know about this, but I guess it's just sort of a testament to, like, he wasn't doing it so that people knew about it. He was just doing it because it's... Yeah. I mean, this guy lived, you know, he was the most famous writer in America, basically. And he lived in a rent-controlled tenement apartment on Lower East Side. Yeah. You you mentioned in the book where there's a conversation in the book where they're talking about um, Salman Rushdie, too, Uh right after the fatwa was was put on him. He visited him and his family. Yeah. Um, Alan's agent was uh, Andrew Wiley, literary mm -hmm. agent. And he was also Rushdie's agent. Mm -hmm. And Andrew said to Alan, would you like to meet Rushdie? That's right. And so they went to, like, secret location with the bomb-proof curtains, Mm -hmm. you know, and the cops, the big cops everywhere. And they got to hang out. And... Uh, and uh, it's accounted in the book how uh, Alan taught Rushdie how to meditate. Yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> he used to make everybody meditate. You had to meditate. We'd do, we'd do a performance, and he'd say, okay, now we're going to teach you how to meditate. And be like 2,000 people, and he'd, he'd take five minutes and say, this is how you do it, now we're going to sit for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Very proselytizing, very uh, wow. a real Buddhist uh, uh, evangelist. Yeah. And really, it ended up sort of being a historian of this time period by recording this yes. and by um, by facilitating all of those writers and, and, yes. and poets. Important. He said to me, you have to write your own history. He says, you're living history. Yeah. You've got to write it down. And uh, write your own history. Nobody's going to do it for you. Because huh. uh, po- the Beats became famous writing about each other. Yeah. yeah. Kerouac wrote about his friends. Sure. Alan wrote about his friends. Mm-hmm. Bill, a lot, a lot of it's autobiography. And you're writing about your friends. I, I'm writing about my friends. <laughs> what was the other thing? And also, but the, also there's the notion from Charles Olson, great American poet Charles Olson, mm-hmm. who said that the, um, the keeper of the culture, because the poet is the keeper of the language, the poet is the keeper of the culture, therefore you're a historian. And that's on a cl- Greek classical model of you know, uh, uh, Thucydides and so forth, the, the writer, the, 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 the poet who commits uh, history to paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this kind of imperative of like, yeah, you gotta keep, you've got to keep the history. Yeah. Well, he's gone 20 years now. Will, William Has outlived been, him. Did he really? Yeah, by a year or so, or some months. I got a message. I was in Colorado, and I got a message. Uh, this is Allen Ginsberg trying to reach Stephen Taylor. Urgent. Please have him call me. And so I called him. He said, well, I'm dying. The doctor says uh, three months, but I feel like about three weeks. He was exactly right. Uh, he said, uh, I feel okay. I must have, all, the, all those years of meditation must have done some good. <laughs> and he said, uh, finish the Blake. His last instructions to me were finish the Blake. Meaning uh, he had set to music the songs of innocence and experience of William Blake. Yeah. But he didn't, he didn't complete the whole set. And he wanted me to finish it. And I'm doing it now. Are you? 20 years later. I promised I would do it. And I've just recorded yes. 35 of the songs.